0: Well, good morning and welcome to New Life's virtual service. Uh, My name is Anthony Gammage. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life where we exist to know Jesus and to make him known. Uh, If you are new here or just checking us out and you would like to uh, have us follow up with you, particularly when we begin meeting in person again, let me encourage you to text the word connect to the number at the bottom of your screen, or you can visit us at newlifedresher.org. But either way, uh, welcome. I'm glad you're with us here uh, this morning. Well, as we jump into this uh, day or this sermon uh, today, we're jumping into a whole new sermon series that's going to take us through uh, out the rest of the summer, and we are going to be diving into the book of Second Corinthians uh and so full disclosure you know i plan out sermon series about 2 years in advance based upon um, just uh what i see in the congregation what the lord's laying on my heart what's going on in culture around us and uh i run it by the governance commission of the session and uh and you know have many other conversations with other people but um I was actually going to jump into 1 Corinthians during this time, but you know, the pandemic and some of what's happening behind, uh, around us pushed me into uh, wanting to study its close cousin here in 2 Corinthians. And let me just give you uh, a peek behind the curtain as to what was going on in my heart as I was wrestling through this. Um, so I began personally studying this book here uh, come the fall, and I was really uh, walking through a season of, of deep grief. Uh, with just some bad news that uh, I had received over the course of that time, some unexpected problems. Uh, there were some unmet expectations. And it was remarkable weakness that that I was experiencing in my life, uh, that I was walking with others through. And as I thought about that, I thought, Lord, where in your word can I go uh, for comfort? And we'll see the word comfort shows up in our passage here today. But I knew the book of 2 Corinthians really uh, outlines this uh, tale of, of Paul and him facing these exact same things. Now here's what I didn't expect as I started walking through the studying of this is is in the midst of weakness, in the midst of grief and, and suffering, what Paul constantly uh, uh, pushes the reader to is to what I would call the cross shaped life, right? It's this life intention, and, and I really have begun to, or I really began to see uh, how uh, the Lord really challenged my heart to say, hey, what does it look like to look more and more like my son in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your weakness? And let me just tell you, like, I didn't study it, and now I've arrived, and I'm, I'm doing great, but, um, you know, me, like many of you, still find myself in a place of grief and struggle and unexpected problems. and and feeling as weak as I've ever felt. And so uh, I felt like, you know, I'm still walking through this. I know us as a culture and us as a church continue to walk through those same senses of weakness and grief. And so now is as good a time as ever to lean into this book that challenges us in the midst of that uh, to ask the question, what does it look to live a cross-shaped life or a life that looks like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And so that's where we're going to head today as we jump into our text. We're going to be looking at first, or Second Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 to 11. But it really uh, calls us to lean into this reality that the cross-shaped life is a life that lives uh, life in tension, that understands the flow of comfort, and then finally relies uh, on God in our weakness. It's a life intention. It's a life that understands the flow of comfort, and it's a life that is reliant in weakness. And so, first, let's look at this idea of a life in tension. Read with me, chapter one of Second Corinthians, uh, verses one and two. It says, "This Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Let me pray for us as we get going today. Lord, uh, would you be with us as we uh, open this new book? And Lord, as we come to you as a people in need of comfort, as a people who feel very weak, Lord, would you challenge our hearts? Would you comfort our hearts first in that? But would you challenge our hearts uh, and change our hearts to look more and more like the cross-shaped life of Jesus Christ? Holy Spirit, speak in and through me. Uh, would you speak to all of us through your word and change us? We pray these things in your name. Amen. <laughs> Well, let's look at this idea of life intention that we see here at the outset of 2 Corinthians. And the first thing I want you to understand is the tension in relationship that Paul is really writing into, right? So it's not overt here, but uh, the first thing we need to pay attention to is the tension of relationship. And and we can see it by understanding in the second part of verse 1 who he's talking to. This is a letter. So an epistle is a letter written to a group of people. And so Paul is writing a letter to uh verse 1 uh the church of god that is in corinth and to all the saints who are in all of achaia all right so saints is just another word for holy ones it's, it's another it's not like super christians but this is just talking about christians in general but it is addressed to a church uh, that is in what what would be modern day greece there should be a map that goes up on your screen right now uh but basically that's a picture of corinth Uh, And then around it is this region of Achaia. And so that's who uh, Paul is writing to. And if we do a little bit of digging in Acts chapter 18, we see this uh, is a church or group of churches that Paul helped plant uh, on his journey to spread the gospel, one of his missionary journeys. And so he went here after Athens. He met people like Priscilla and Aquila. This is where we find out that Paul made tents, right? But here's the thing. There is great tension in this relationship between Paul and this church. If we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, we'll see that Paul, after he left and planted those churches, spent time there, fell in love with the people, heard reports that man, Corinth was a dumpster fire, right? Uh, things weren't going so well in this city. In fact, uh, these reports were, hey, the church is dividing into groups, or there's casual sex breaking out all throughout the church. People were um, uh, uh, dividing over uh, eating meat and quarreling over opinion-level issues. People were getting drunk at church events. They were denying the resurrection. It was kind of the Wild West in that moment. And so Paul, hearing this, writes a letter. And that's what the letter of 1 Corinthians is. It's him addressing all of these issues. Well, then we find out that, you know, after this letter, uh, there was still not uh, much repentance or reform happening in the church. And so Paul, we find out uh, in 2 Corinthians 2 1, goes and makes a face-to-face visit, right? They get called to the principal's office. And he kind of lights them up, right? It was a rough visit. He says that in that, in in that verse. He says, hey, this was a, a hard visit. And then we see later there is a second letter that's a lost letter. We don't have it. So really this is kind of third Corinthians. Um, not really, but uh, because the first one was lost and we don't add it to uh, scripture. But in seven, eight and nine, he talks in chapter seven, verses eight and nine, he talks about how harsh that letter was. But the good news that we read there is that reform and repentance does Begin to happen, and so Second Corinthians, uh, in some ways, is a defense of his apostleship, which we'll talk about here in just a second. Uh, but it's also him assuring this church that he still loves them in the midst of all this relational tension. And so, here's the second thing we see: is there's tension in suffering that that we can kind of get a glimpse of as we read even this opening. Uh, so, again, back to verse one, where it says, "Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God." Right, that's a pretty standard uniform opening for a letter like this, but, but there's actually quite a bit behind that. So first off, this idea of apostle, uh, apostle technically means in the language uh, sent out one or one that is sent out. And so the apostles uh, are, are a, a, a very official office that we see that is very unique to the church in this day. Uh, the 12 apostles were really the 12 disciples uh, of Jesus and Uh, the apostle Paul, who Jesus appeared to and made an apostle as well. Now, the understanding was, was these apostles had authority to start churches and to govern them while they were on the earth. And so uh, in part, when Paul says, I'm an apostle, he's saying, I have authority to write this sort of letter to you. Now, here's why this is significant is that Paul's apostleship actually gets questioned in this church quite a bit. In fact, we'll find out later uh, that super apostles begin to question his authority. And you know why they question him? Because he suffers a lot. They say, you can't possibly be an apostle if you suffer a lot. And we will find out that this dude suffers a ton. And so what Paul is doing is he rewires their thinking of what the Christian life looks like. He's saying, actually, (laughs) there's a tension in that the Christian life often means suffering. Here's a third thing that we see that's a tension. There's a tension in paradox in this book of the Bible. Now, this isn't in these opening chapters, but um, a paradox, first of all, to understand what that is, is it's essentially a a seemingly self-contradicting statement that after investigating proves to be true. So it's saying something that seems to contradict itself that later as you work it out, it's like, oh, it actually is true. They don't contradict themselves. And so Paul writes about a lot of paradoxes in this book of the Bible that's going to bend our brains, right? It bent their brains back then. And then to our modern ears, these paradoxes are really going to mess with us. You can almost divide up this book of the Bible uh, by these paradoxes, right? The first seven chapters is this paradox of, of um, 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 a high standing coming from being made low, right? Being humbled. That's verses chapter 1 to 7. Chapters 8 and 9 uh, really talks about how um, uh, we gain riches from poverty. And then finally, in chapters 10 to 13, it talks about strength coming from weakness. Friends, those don't make sense to our modern years, and they didn't make sense to them back then. But what Paul is saying is this tension of these paradoxes, these are real in the Christian life. And it, in fact, is what God uses to shape us into the cross-shaped life. And to look more and more like Jesus. Now I'm going to tell you about another uh quarantobi uh that I have. Uh, if you don't know what a quarantine hobby is, uh it's a hobby that happens during quarantine. Uh so many of us have started doing sourdough bread baking, uh, you've learned a new language, you've started gardening, you know, whatever that may be. Uh a very brief quarantine hobby for me was playing the guitar. Uh I tend to pick up my guitar once every five years or so when there's a little bit of a, a window or, or relief in time. And so I did that for about a month. And as I started playing, I was like, oh, I haven't changed these strings in like five years. I haven't played it much, right, for the musicians out there going, oh, that's terrible of you. Um, but essentially, uh, I had uh, extra strings in my Uh, guitar case and so I pulled them out and I was looking at the the strings in the in the plastic bag like that's pretty cool that's all coiled up it's still shiny and I looked at it but you know if I just leave it in the bag uh, is it really accomplishing um, what it's made to do no not at all right when when does that string become how it was created well it's when you put tension on it right it's when you stick it, uh, you know, stick the pegs over it, and you stretch it across the neck, and you put the tension on it, and you and you tune it, and and you play it, and that's when <laughs> these strings really accomplish what they're made to, and what the master's purpose is for it is. Friends, I think that's what's getting ready to happen to us, and to me, as we walk through. The book of 2 Corinthians, as we look at tension in relationships and tension in suffering and tension and these paradoxes that God wants to stretch us, to make us look more and more like his son, to make us who he wants us to be. Can we lean into that? Here's a second point I want you to see, is the flow of comfort. The flow of comfort that, that 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 is understood, that Paul lays out for us. And really, uh, verses 3 to 11 are main themes that are going to weave all throughout the rest of this book. But let's look at the flow of comfort. We see it moving three directions. We see it move up, in, and out. So let me read uh, 3 to 7. See if you can't figure out these directions as I read. Up, in, and out. Says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. All right, so let's look at the flow of comfort here. Up, right? Let's first talk about up. And we see that, uh, we see it throughout. Did you see how many times the word comfort is used? It's used 10 times here, right? When you see something repeated that much, that is our cue to pay attention to what's going on. But this idea of up, do you see, um, well, first of all, comfort is this term in Greek, parakalesis, right? It comes from the verb parakaleo, which essentially means to ask or to exhort or to encourage or to comfort. And what he's saying here at the very beginning is, is the source of our comfort comes from above, from up, right? God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercy and the God of all comforts. He is the spring from which all true comfort comes from. God is so dedicated to being the God of comfort, the Father of mercies, that there's actually one member of the Trinity that is called the paraclete or the helper or the comforter. Jesus in John fourteen fifteen and sixteen teaches about the ministry of this Paraclete or Parakletas I think is what it is in the Greek Uh, as he essentially says I'm leaving you but 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 I'm going to send you a helper a Paraclete listen to this in John chapter fourteen as Jesus is leaving he says these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you but the helper the parakletos, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And here it is. This is kind of the idea of comfort. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And what we find is this helper, this comforter, is one that every single follower of Christ is given. God is the source of all comfort and mercy. Dave Harvey, he's a pastor in Florida, talks about a spring that he and his wife went to in Florida, in Ocala, uh, Ocala Springs, or it's in Ocala, Florida. And this one spring in particular bubbles up every day 880 million gallons of 72-degree crystal-clear water. And he's talking about, hey, when there's a drought, you know, I'm not going to go to the, the drainage ditch and get that nasty water, uh, right? I'm going to go to a place where there is a spring where 880 million gallons a day of fresh water is bubbling up for us to partake of. And he's saying that is the picture of the mercy and the comfort that God is constantly and continually offering his people. Here's the challenge is that we often go to the dirty dishwater sink water for our comfort and not to that eternal spring. And if you want proof of that, Google things like how much alcohol sales have gone up since the quarantine. Look at how much news consumption and the polarization uh, that has happened in our nation as I believe people have just continued to imbibe uh, these um, these um, uh, polarizing Politics to try to regain power, right? Or look at how we've tried to numb ourselves. Look at how much Netflix and Amazon Prime viewership has gone up just so we can just kind of numb the pain and try to find comfort that way. We're trying to find comfort through numbing ourselves or through regaining control. But what's happening is we are becoming angrier and more detached than we've ever been. And I think that's indicative of us forgetting that there is this spring of mercy and comfort offered to us. By the God of the universe. Mm -hmm. Friends, to find comfort, are we going to the spring or are we going to the sink? Well, here's in. That's up, right? Here's in. Uh, Verse 4 and 5, Paul finds himself in two places. He says, God comforts us in all our affliction. Right? And so... Uh, first of all, this, you know, he talks about affliction and suffering seven times, right? So that's something to pay attention to as well. And, and, and this affliction or suffering is both internal and external. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know in chapters 11 and 12 that Paul says, I was anxious for the churches. That means stuff's happening inside. Uh, he was also stoned and shipwrecked. That is definitely happening from the outside. But either way, he's saying, I am suffering. And his suffering is coming in the name of Christ and the work he is doing. On his behalf. Friends, have you ever been persecuted at all? Have you ever felt, faced affliction or suffering in the name of Christ because you're a Christian? That is primarily what Paul is experiencing here. But listen to what he's also saying he is experiencing in the midst of affliction. Here's the other in. He says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also. What he's saying is is what is true of the Savior becomes what is true of his people. And yes, that does include suffering. But it also includes comfort. In fact, there is a unique level of comfort that comes in suffering that we would never experience elsewhere elsewhere. Told you the story before of my son uh, who was going through a season of suffering, but he was doing it with a friend, and he just told me, he's like, Dad. <laughs> He said, it's crazy, like this is really hard, but, but, but it, there's something almost, I think he said enjoyable or fun about doing it with somebody else. I think the term he would use today would be comforting. There's somebody else in this with you. And that is the picture that Paul is actually painting of the suffering that he's going through, but the comfort that he's experiencing because he is identifying in a deep way with his savior. One of the most powerful stories I've ever heard uh, about this is from a friend of mine who at the time of this story was the chaplain of the New York Jets. His name was George. And basically uh, when I was young uh, and, you know, I remember seeing this replay on ESPN over and over again, there was this football player by the name of Dennis Byrd who he was a defensive lineman and he turned a corner trying to make a play on a ball and his head ran into his teammate's chest. I think it was his chest Uh, and essentially, um, uh, you know, injured his spinal column. He was paralyzed. He collapsed. He collapsed. Uh, they rushed him to the hospital to try to save his life and George he happened to be in uh, attending the chapel's regularly and going to the bible studies and and, and so George knew him well and so George was one of the first people with him by his side as he couldn't move. I think Dennis Bird was the thumbs-up guy. Um, but anyway, uh, so as George is with him by his bed, he's sitting there. He's like, first of all, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I have never been in a situation with this amount of suffering. And that's often how we feel when we stand next to someone who's going through intense suffering, uh, unlike what we've gone through. In a way, we feel uncomfortable. We're feeling afflicted. And so George is saying, I'm standing there and it's me and Dennis and his wife. And, and he said, I look at Dennis and all of a sudden tears are just rolling down his face and, and he runs over and he grabs his hand. He's like, Hey, we're there, we're here, buddy. You know, we're going to get through this. And, and Dennis just said, no, you, you don't understand. He said, I now understand the suffering Jesus went through for me so that I can have life in him. In that moment, Dennis was identifying with the suffering of his Savior. And that was bringing comfort to Dennis. And you know what else that was doing? It was bringing comfort to my friend George, which leads to the third part of the direction, out. Comfort flows out. Friends, so often the comfort we receive, we kind of trap it in ourselves and we keep it here for just us, but that's not at all the direction of the flow of comfort. Verse 4 it says God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. You know, what does is, what is the spring do? It bubbles out, so it goes out all the all the tributaries and it waters the grass and, 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 and the trees, right? And that's what the comfort we receive from the spring. That's how God designs it to flow. When we've been in the hospital and go visit somebody else who is in the hospital, we are comforting with a comfort that we have received from others. We can identify with that person and their suffering in ways that many other people can't, and God designed it that way so that we, as the body of Christ, or as human beings, can go comfort another person. So often we treat the reception of comfort like the Dead Sea, where it flows in and it gets locked. Here's the other thing I thought was really interesting. He says in verse 4, He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we can comfort those who are in any affliction. Now, the term in the Greek is actually the same there. I looked that up. But uh, essentially what he's saying is, is God comforts us in every situation of affliction so that we can comfort other people in every situation of suffering and affliction. I don't know about you, but I usually feel totally out of sorts when I walk along people who are suffering with something I've never experienced. And what this is saying is that's okay. Use however the Lord has comforted you to comfort other people when he's put you there. Here's the other thing I want us to see before we move on from this. He says, if we are afflicted, it is for, verse 6, your comfort. That's a different dynamic, isn't it? The cross-centered life is basically saying, if I suffer, it's for your sake. And isn't that a picture of the cross? Jesus Christ suffered for our sake. And what Paul is saying is that's the cross-shaped life. That even as we face suffering, we view it as an opportunity to bring comfort to another. Here's a third point. Reliance and weakness. A cross centered life is a life or a cross shaped life is a life that shows reliance even in weakness. Verses eight to eleven. It says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God. Who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us in prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So let's look at this last point of reliance and weakness. The first thing we see is despair. Did you see it? Verse 8? We don't want you to be aware. What we experienced in Asia, we were so utterly burdened. This picture of a burden on their back to the point where it says um, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. One pastor said, it's one thing to feel like we're in a dark night. It's another thing to feel that we are under a sentence of death. It's this picture of Paul saying, we were crushed. Have you ever felt crushed by life? N.T. Wright says this. He says, It's bad enough to hear a magistrate or a judge declare that you are sentenced to death. It's far worse when a voice deep inside of yourself tells you that you might as well give up and die. My friends, I know a lot of you have faced this. And here's what I want you to hear. So, so let's, let's, let's first talk about what did he experience in Asia? Well, we actually don't know. It could have been in Ephesus where he was run out of town because he messed with their commerce. It could have been Acts 20 where Paul is meeting with the Ephesians' elders and he's saying, wolves are going to come in and and try to steal the sheep. It might have been some of the anxieties that he's talking about, but, but here's the reality. We don't know for sure what exactly he experienced in Asia, and I think that's good. Because it gives those of us who have felt crushed by life a category to say, an apostle struggled there. In a way, it removes some of the shame and the guilt that, that that enables us or causes us to stuff this and keep it in the dark until it does destroy us. It gives us the freedom to be able to say, I struggled to the point of despairing of life as well and to bring that into the light. Paul wrote it down so we can read it thousands of years later. Right? But he's saying we are to the point of despair Despair meaning there was a total unavailability of any exit. Friends, are you in Asia right now? In despair, feeling like there is no exit, no way out. Maybe it's being stuck in a house with a bunch of little kids. No offense, little kids. Maybe it's being stuck in a business that's accruing more debt and you don't see your way out. Several of you actually admitted to me this week that what happened with the horrendous death of George Floyd brought you to this point of despair. Here's the good news in that, is that even though a lot feels like death right now, like I just said, that's exactly when we see God often most on the move. It's where he works, even in verse 9. He says, we've received this. It's made us not to rely on ourselves, but of God who raises from the dead in the midst of the feeling of death. Paul says, but God raises from the dead. Present tense raises from the dead. This isn't just this past resurrection thing. He's saying, we know now that he raises from the dead and he talks about deliverance. He says it three times in the next verse. In verse 10, he delivered us from such deadly peril. He will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And I think if you look back and what he's talking about as it pertains to God raising from the dead, yes, he believes he can physically in this life deliver him, but I think he's looking ahead and saying, he will ultimately deliver me eternally as well. And that is my hope. Here's the last D. There's despair, there's deliverance, but then finally... There's dependence. Did you read that in verse 9? We felt like we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises from the dead. Friends, the cross-shaped life is one that is completely and utterly dependent on God and God alone. You know what God's saying here? He's saying what we rely on, what we are dependent on, is significant. Friends, do we take what we rely on as seriously as God does? To steal another line from Dave Harvey, he says, God is so serious about reliance that he creates the most painful times of our lives to cause it or to create it. Did you hear what he said? That was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God. Harvey goes on to say, how do we know that our weakness has become reliant, right? Because sometimes we can just be weak for weak's sake. But when does weakness become reliant? And he says it's when we suspend judgment on what God is doing and actually trust him. Friends, moments of despair can either become a boulder or a bridge on the tracks of our lives. When we approach every hardship, which I get this, But when we approach it all with a judgmental attitude of saying, God, you shouldn't have and how dare you, it becomes a boulder that will crush our faith. But if we look at it as a bridge where we cannot see to the other side, but we trust you and what you're doing, that reliant life becomes a life that gets tapped into that spring of comfort. And don't get me wrong. I don't want anybody to ever think I'm saying never ask the why question of God. I think we actually have a beautiful model of how to ask the why questions in these moments of despair when we have lament. Lament is this sacred question where we're asking the right questions of the right person and we crawl up on our father's lap and we pound on his chest and we say, why God, I trust you enough to sit in your lap and pound you in the chest and I need you to comfort me. And what we see in every one of the Psalms of lament but one is we see it resolve in that comfort and in worship. And some of you may say, but that feels so tyrannical that he puts these things in my life to make me follow him. And what I want you to see is don't forget verse 3. He's not just saying, come follow me mindlessly. He's saying, come to the springs of comfort and mercy. That's what I want you to rely on. Not the dirty sink water, but me. I want you to let me put the strings on the guitar and put tension on it so that I can play it and that it looks and sounds beautiful to become the cross-shaped life that I have intended it to be. Friends, may the God of all comfort and Father of all mercy give us as a church and as individuals the ability to live life in tension, to understand the flow of comfort and to rely on him in our weakness so that he can shape us into the cross-shaped life to look more and more like his son. Let me close us in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time. These are challenging words spoken into cyberspace. And I just pray that that where a scab might have been ripped off, would you meet it with the comfort that you offer in who you are the Father of mercy and the God of all comforts. Lord, in the place where we are running after comforts that will destroy us and poison us, draw us back to yourself. And Lord, where we are seeking comfort everywhere else and not even knowing who you are, will you introduce us to the cross of Jesus Christ? Thank you for this time. We pray these things in your name. Amen.